Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Joining me today is Amanda Castora, who is the founder of Carve Your Own Path, which is uh, an organization designed to help destigmatize mental illness and and also improve mental health. Can Amanda, thank you for joining us. And please tell us more about Carve Your Own Path. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, I have a podcast and I'm always reaching out to guests. So it was uh, kind of beautiful to be asked to be on someone else's. So thank you for having me. Uh, so Carve Your Own Path was founded in November 2018. Uh, I would say most of my life I've been a, a helper and a server and a social worker at heart before I even went to school for it. Uh, and I knew that I didn't like the systems I was working in. They didn't seem to be doing things with the person that we're serving in mind. You know, the policies and the changes they would make just didn't make sense. And it was really frustrating. So I always knew I wanted my own thing. And I had started it as I was working within other organizations. In just February this year, I finally left hanging on to other organizations super part-time. I'm completely on my own running Carve Your Own Path now. Uh, so we do mental health counseling. I do supervision for uh, clinicians that are working on their own independent licensure to become independently licensed and be able to provide services. I also do education and training in the community and uh, really try to educate. You know, uh, you found me on TikTok, do a lot of social media education through there and Instagram and other platforms just to really, like you said, destigmatize mental health, normalize health is health. When we talk about mental health, uh, you know, especially with this pandemic and, you know, the protests, a lot of it is social health. Uh, how much are you, um, how much of your program talks about both or integrates both, or is it mostly focused on the individual? Oh, being a social worker, you know, advocacy at a social macro level. Actually, my my master's program, you had options to do micro focus, which was really that one-on-one -on -one clinical work, or macro focus, which is like grassroots, big picture change, systemic change. So I actually chose the macro focus in my program because uh, I wanted to be able to make those systemic changes, but uh, I ended up focusing more clinically anyway. So it is always a part, it is a part of our ethical code as social workers to constantly advocate for social justice. Um, so yeah, it's something I work out at both levels. You can't ignore the systems that people are living within when you're working with them one-on-one. -on -one. It's so true. We're not, we're not independent as much as we would like to think that, you know, I, I'm just, I could just pull myself up by the bootstraps. Uh, it's not as easy as that. Yeah. If you could wave a magic wand, Amanda, and you could make one you could pass like one bill or one policy or uh, whether it's adding a thing or taking away a thing legislatively or systematically, what would that be for you that you would think would make a huge difference in um, mental health? I, <laughs> there's so many things. I often say I wish I could sprinkle little fairy dust over the whole world and at least the U.S. Um, and make us understand how important preventative wellness is. I think a lot of times we focus so much on the band-aids and the symptoms and the disease, and we don't look at the root cause. Um, we miss a lot of preventative work. You know, how, I, 
right now I'm putting together a training on emotional regulation, how many people get into their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and have no idea how to regulate their own bodies. And a lot of the work that I specialize in is the mind-body connection. So I'll see people that have significant chronic health conditions, what we classify a lot as like invisible illnesses, right? Chronic pain or um, diabetes or uh, just any chronic health condition. And they have you know, a lot of what the work I did was integrated care in physician's office so I could see their physical health charts and just the amount of diagnoses upon diagnoses and the amount of specialists they see. And at no point does anyone say what happened to you or what does your community look like or what is your environment like? Um, how do you regulate your stress? Even though we've known for centuries what the stress does to our body. So that would be probably the biggest thing is providing education and awareness and preventative skills very early on to people to help them understand a lot of these things are preventable. And instead of working backwards and putting band-aids on the symptoms you're feeling now, we could be, you know, what, it, what would the world be if we taught kindergartners how to regulate, breathe, right? Get through that anger in a healthy way. Um, and then the the importance of trauma too, you know, the trauma, I, I, I can't ignore a single whether you have a PTSD diagnosis, everyone has had some form of trauma. Living through a pandemic, we've all been through trauma. So just the importance of addressing that too. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because I think uh, a lot of us, when we think of trauma, we think of uh, a war veteran. Um, we think of someone who is maybe sexually uh, abused. And we don't realize that, uh, as you said, even just living through the pandemic, you know, what 2020 was for a lot of us, that was traumatizing on some level. Can you can you uh, expand the definition of what we think trauma is? Absolutely. So there's the clinical DSM diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So somebody could meet all those clinical symptoms, you know, flashbacks, re-experiencing. However, someone might have been through something traumatic, which really trauma is a natural biological response to an abnormal event, right? So our bodies are just doing what they know how to do. Our stress responses are saying, ooh, pay attention. Something's wrong. I'm kind of scared. What do we do here? And if you do have a true, um, you know, we call it like little T and big T, if you've had a lot of little T's that might not add up to a full on PTSD diagnosis, or you do have big traumas and you do have a PTSD diagnosis, those situations and those stressors, everything is a trauma now. And your body is full on in fight, flight, freeze response. So a trauma is just an, a normal response to an abnormal event in your life. That could be, you know, I, I could, me and you could be in the same car. We could be driving down the road and someone rear, rear ends us and we get into a crash, right? I could never want to get into a car again. And you could be like, Amanda, what are you talking about? Get in the car and drive. So it's all about how we individually respond. And a lot of that has to do with our own upbringings, our own you know, um, coping skills and family and support systems, but absolutely people have trauma every single day. Doesn't mean you meet a full blown PTSD diagnosis. You, you talked about family and support systems and, you know, I myself just signed up for a sugar and carb anonymous group. I don't even know if you're supposed to tell people that, but, um, my, my girlfriend is constantly asking me like, how can she be more supportive? And I think that a lot of people have 
family members, friends, people in their lives who want to be supportive, but they don't know how to be supportive when someone uh, is displaying unhealthy coping coping mechanisms. Uh, What advice or tips do you have for them? Uh, for, for the person who's undergoing it and wants to communicate to somebody how to be supportive, what what do they say to that person? Yeah, so I think a lot of times we feel this is again, this is something we're not taught how to do, right? Just being there for another person, uh, and so really, it's not having answers or really telling anyone what to do because everyone uh, a principle of social work is everyone has the right to self-determination. So, you know, I can give out all the tools in the world as a therapist and yet you're going to do what you want to do with best for your life. And I feel like we need to apply that to everyone. Uh, and also we understand there's a thing called stages of change. And so you have to re- reach certain motivation points <laughs> in order to be ready to change. So um, it's not about forcing someone or saying the right thing or giving them the right resource. It's really just being there, right? So you kind of put yourself in their shoes. Do you want someone that's going to say, you need to stop eating that, or you need to talk to your doctor, or maybe you should get on medication. No, we don't really want you to tell me what to do. Listening, just truly listening, reflectively listening, repeating back what the person said to you, right? It sounds like that's really stressful for you offering support, but maybe not in specific ways, just saying what might be helpful for you, you know, as do you, would you like me to go with you to that first meeting? Or do you need me to help you find one that works for you? But really letting that person be their own guide, because what we know is that when you try to force things, people kind of shut down. I love that. That That's so important. Um, and because I think that a lot of people just want somebody to be there with them versus uh, mm-hmm. trying to fix them. Um, but you know, we live in such a fix-it society that that's our that's our go-to, and because our parents did that, right? If you if you scraped your knee or hurt yourself, your your mom immediately or your dad or whoever was there was was trying to fix it and make it better immediately, or told you to suppress what you were feeling, and so mm-hmm. then you become an adult, and uh, and that becomes a, a challenge. How <laughs> you know when we talk about trauma and coping skills. I'm reading so much more about like generational trauma and generational mm. patterns uh, and, and that mm in your voice uh, tells me that that resonates with you. Can, can you talk more about that and how that can show up? And because I think a lot of our behaviors, we're not even aware that we've inherited from, uh, you know, our past. Yeah. Trauma literally alters your DNA. So genetically, what isn't changed what remains the same continues to get passed down from generation to generation until we do something different. Um, I would say one of the biggest examples of this is the oppression, the racism systemically, excuse me, um, with black individuals in America. Um, Oftentimes, and actually we talked about this on one of our other podcasts is oftentimes people, black folks can be seen as angry or difficult or, and a lot of that, if we look at the root of it is, yeah, there's a whole lot of trauma there. Of course, that's what it's coming out as, you know? Um, so it, those things continue to get passed down in our DNA biologically until someone stops. And that for somebody to kind of go through therapy and be the vulnerable person and make the change is so difficult and so beautiful at the same time as a therapist, seeing the 
the first person to come to therapy and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. And I don't want my kids to live this way. So I'm going to do the changes is one of the most beautiful things to, to walk through with someone. You talked about coping skills and, you know, we know like for a lot of kids who grew up, maybe grew up in an abusive household. Um, and, and so they might use food or, or cutting or, or some type of, of method to, to cope. Is there a period where it's actually like healthy and then you just realize it doesn't serve you anymore? If that question makes sense. Like for me, I recognize when I was a kid, I used food to cope uh, because you, you, as a kid, you kind of don't have, a, or at least you feel like you don't have a voice. And then you become an adult and you go, oh, I have a voice now. I don't have to use that as a, as a coping skill anymore. Uh, have you found that like, it's like things that maybe we are like, that's not healthy for you now as an adult or actually useful for you as a kid or um, might just depend on the context in terms of what works and what doesn't work? Yeah, it, it depends is quite often something that comes out of my mouth. But I, when you say that, you said as a kid, I use food to cope and my brain just goes to, well, what if somebody had given you a healthy coping skill to use? What if someone taught you how to breathe? What if someone taught you you could go pillow? What if someone taught you, you know, right? What if someone taught you those exercises or those healthy coping skills way back then, would you have needed to go to the food? So, but I love that point because it just explains, you know, a lot of my clients will say that they feel shame or guilt because they did one of those unhelpful behaviors that they're aware isn't helpful to them living a healthy lifestyle and the goals that we're trying to work toward. And I say, okay, every behavior makes sense in context. You're trying to self-soothe, whether it's eating, whether it's addiction, whether it's relationships, um, gambling, sex, every behavior makes sense in context. We're trying to regulate ourselves. And if you didn't get those emotional regulation skills in any other way, of course, um, and oftentimes those are trauma responses that come through automatically, like dissociating, right, or deflecting, um, cutting. You know, your your body is overwhelmed with trauma or some something that it can't release. So cutting feels like a release. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but. No, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, because I love that you said that every behavior makes sense in context. And I think that's important to highlight because it allows for uh, more self-compassion, right? Mm -hmm. Where sometimes we beat ourselves up for responding the way we did or reacting the way we did. When, when you look at the the situation, the context of, you know, the backstory, your history, all these different things, it makes sense uh, why you would respond that way. It's almost like, and I hate to compare humans to dogs, but like, you know, uh, dogs were bred to uh, perform certain tasks, you know, whether it's to herd sheep or to hunt. And so whether your dog has ever done that or not, if it's in their DNA, as you said, trauma changes your your DNA. We clearly see that uh, with uh, animals like dogs and uh, Mm -hmm. and even cats, right? Well, that's a very, you know, that's not, (laughs) obviously humans aren't, aren't dogs, but the survival response where trauma lives is primal, right? So those are automatic biological responses, just like with a dog. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what I mean about the mind body connection. What I was talking about way, way before is that 
you know, it's like, we can focus on your gain green on your foot, but the core root is the diabetes. And how do we get you to manage that? Like, yeah, you let this go. Am I going to sit here and shame you? Or like, I've worked, you know, I've worked in addictions a long time and there's so much stigma around addiction. And it's like, if you do the research, those people are very hurt and they're very disconnected and they have a lot of needs to be met. So it's like asking yourself what need isn't being met that we're now trying to seek out. So like with the food eating or with the addiction or with the unhelpful relationships, what need didn't we get met? And it's, it always goes back to childhood. Um, a lot of times people don't want to hear that. They're like, no, what is it right now? And I'm like, those were our formative years. It's so important. So if we didn't get that love, if we didn't get the connection, if we were rejected, if, um, or if people did everything for us, right? Like you gave the knee example, scraping your knee. If someone comes and hurries and helps you every time, now you're not learning independence. You're not learning how to self-regulate. You're not learning how to cope. Or if someone shames you and says, I can't believe you did that. What's wrong with you? Why didn't you pay better attention? Now you're going to be tiptoeing and you're not going to want to make any decision ever in life. And you'll be indecisive and scared, right? And those kind of develop as our schemas for the world. Do you find uh, between genders that our needs um, are the same, but, you know, between male and female, do you feel, or, you know, because there's like the book, The Five Love Languages, or, you know, uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like, are, <laughs> like are, are we that different? Are there differences or are, are, are our needs pretty much the same? So I think, you know, especially with gender being more of on a spectrum now, I think it really depends. And I would hate to put it into a certain category. Um, we all have basic primal needs. We all have, you know, connection is a basic human need. Eating, survival, those are basic human needs. Oftentimes it's more about the socialization. Um, so like rather than thinking of like the typical male stereotype and the typical female stereotype, it's like, how are we socialized? So if, you know, if I see a, a male that was raised and socialized mostly by females or maternal figures and have that more warm and emotional um, surrounding them, they might have those needs met versus a male that was raised in a male dominant home that didn't really get taught those maternal, right? So it kind of just depends on your upbringing. That's why the system's so important. Um, if I did say just in my own practice, different connections, there's a lot of need for. Um, and I don't say ego in a derogatory way. Uh, I see more need for like ego needs with men um, of needing to feel important, needing to feel like they can provide. And again, I don't think that's a necessarily a genetic gender difference more as a, what we've socialized men to be. Yeah, the, the, you're absolutely right because there's such a emphasis, I feel like, on a man as, uh, you know, uh, making your mark on the world and mm -hmm. uh leaving a legacy you know it's like for women mm -hmm. it's like leaving children and for men is like mm -hmm. leaving a legacy and and uh what well, your father's father you know carrying on the tradition of whatever it is uh so yeah i definitely and even in myself i i feel that as you know i'm 45 and as i'm getting older i'm like wow you know um you know is any what's my is what i'm doing significant is it important will it make an impact uh, is it mm -hmm. meaningful? Uh, but like you said, I, I think that these are questions that um, resonate with all people, right? Uh, finding meaning, feeling important, feeling uh, connected. 
I mean, th- those are those are basic human needs that that we all have. And I do see, um, you know, just I've worked with I've worked with all ages. I don't work with kid kiddos like sixteen and up. Uh, I'm there for, but I've worked with people that, you know, are going through retirement. Right. And so oftentimes I'll see the differences there too. You know, men, when they retire, they almost lose and women too, right. There's a sense of identity loss, but a lot of times men associate sense of identity more with career and what they can contribute in that way. Um, so a lot of times when I see them retire, there's like, uh, increase in depression or anxiety symptoms, which is really just an adjustment disorder <laughs> oftentimes, um, because your life is drastically different. So the coping skills might be similar that I'd recommend for a female to deal with those symptoms, but the action steps they take might be different. So whereas a female that's retiring might focus more on family or friendships and relationships, a male might now pick up other hobbies that feel like they um, get achievement from. So a lot of times they'll go into like genealogy or, you know, they'll golf with their buddy, you know, things that they can do that they still feel that sense of accomplishment achievement where, um, so that might be kind of a difference too, is that women tend to be a little more relational. What, you know, uh, Amanda, how long have you been doing this kind of work? How long have you been a social worker? Let's see here. It's 2021, 2020. 13 is when I got my master's degree. So, but I've been in the field since 2010. So about 11 years. And, and, and so going back and and looking at your childhood, was this, uh, it sounds like this was always a part of your character to, uh, you know, stand up for injustices, be an advocate for others. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you feel like growing up in your household that you had a voice or, uh, was there someone in your household that you were trying to give a voice to? So I was raised by a single mom. Um, it was me, my mom and my brother. Um, and so I saw my mom work her booty off (laughs) to get us, you know, where we needed to be. You know, when we were in systems, I didn't know because she did a real good job hiding it. Um, I think the only things that I really started to know were like, Oh, I go get my finger pricked. And that was wick. And I didn't know what that was until I started talking to other friends and they were like, we don't do that. Like, or like when I went to go get my school lunch for the first time, I had a ticket and everyone else was paying for theirs. Um, so I really learned to be an independent, strong person. And, uh, I don't know. I have actually, I think I did a TikTok on this is that I learned to be a strong, independent woman. And at, at the same time, that kind of shut me out from being vulnerable to other people was like, I don't have time for this relationship. I don't need anybody else. I just got to take care of me type thing. Um, I was the youngest. So my brother is five years older than me. He's uh, struggled with some addiction issues. And so I've always felt like the older, older, younger sister kind of advocating. And then even if, you know, I've looked back on like school assignments and there was one that was asking, you know, in elementary school, what do you think a teacher should be? And it was like, a teacher should never discriminate against anyone based on their skin and a teacher should be nice to everyone depending on, you know, regardless of how smart they are. And just, it was, I don't know. It's like something I was meant, I was called to, honestly, I just feel like I was kind of born for it. I I love that. And, you know, you you talked about how you had this image of wanting to be a strong, independent woman, woman, and that kind of uh, shut out people or relationships. How did you, Uh, reconcile this image of what you thought you were supposed to be 
and then recognizing how it was actually it might actually be holding you back from connecting uh with someone i mean you're married now so uh, you know i i assume that you've you've worked through a lot of that what was that what was that process like for you yeah it wasn't honestly it wasn't until this relationship you know um i spent a lot of time you know because i was that caregiver i spent a lot of time trying to mold people into what i thought they could be right trying to give them and and kind of just carry them along in the relationship and it wasn't until i got into a true relationship where it was equal and someone else wanted to take care of me more than you know i needed to take care of them and um, that's when I really realized, oh, I got some serious defense mechanisms up emotionally. Like I'm not willing to let you in and wait a minute, you can't take care of me. I take care of myself. Um, I was actually in a really toxic job and I was, my depression was at its all time worse. I was having suicidal ideations way more frequently. I have chronic pain myself. So my flare ups, I was using my FMLA time. And I came home one day and we had been very early in dating. And I said, I can't do this anymore. We were living together, but we had still not been together. It was still under a year, I want to say. And uh, I said, I can't do this anymore. And he said, so quit. And I was like, I can't quit my job. And he was like, it's fine. I'll figure it out. Well, I can cover you until. And it was so genuine. Like, I totally believed him. And I actually ended up quitting that job and not having a job for the first time in my life you know, quitting a job without having another one. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is weird. This is interesting. I think I need to start evaluating some things. And so you ask how I kind of reconciled it, that that's the moment that I realized, all right, I need to work on some of these things, these defense mechanisms. And to this day, I'm in therapy as a therapist and I work through my stuff every day because those are, like I said, ingrained things that are really difficult to work through. Well, can you give us an example of what a defense mechanism looks like? Because there's so many people who may not even recognize that they are putting up a a, a wall or utilizing defense mechanisms. Uh, can you go through that with us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So like one of the, this is something I've, I don't do much anymore. It was more a problem in previous relationships, but kind of stonewalling is one, you know, where somebody wants to talk to you about something deeper emotionally and I'm just going to shut down and I'm not going to say a word, right? I'm not going to communicate with you. I'm going to punish you in that way. And that it was a protection method for me. I'm going to hurt you first before you hurt me or, um, turning it around, right? Blaming the other person and kind of deflecting from the actual topic at hand and saying, well, you do this. And you do that when they're trying to talk about something that they're concerned about with me. Uh, so, yeah, those are a couple just personally that I've gone through. So, you know, with the blaming thing, because that's so especially in relationships, both parties are unwilling to accept responsibility for their part in it. Is there a re, do you have a reframe for that or how have you changed your perspective on uh, when you feel that impulse to be like you, blah blah blah. Where, where do you? How do you uh, uh, alchemize that? One of the biggest things I teach my clients, and then I also try to practice myself, is mindfulness, which oftentimes people associate with meditation, and it's so much more than that, right? Like it is a part of your life entirely. So mindfulness is literally just taking that moment to be in the present moment and recognizing that. So. I will mindfully realize my body is starting to get tense. My chest is getting tight. I'm getting irritable physically. 
And so I'll take that moment to breathe. I'll pause. I'll say, hold on, I need a minute. Or I'll just take a second to think before I actually respond rather than being reactive. Um, So that's a big thing for me. Um, I use, I don't know if you've ever heard of tapping. I use emotional freedom technique, EFT. Just tell me about tap. She's uh she was just diagnosed with breast cancer and she's using uh-huh. tapping um as a coping mechanism to uh manage her anxiety. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm but so can you talk to, to us about tapping? I mean, actually it's it's interesting because um she, you know, with thankfully they caught it early enough because uh mm-hmm. She 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 uh you know she was always checking herself, and I, I feel like she may come out stronger on the other side from this because you know she's learning so much about food and nutrition and managing her stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like all these, and you know she stopped drinking. So it's it's in a way at least from the I mean of course there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and and that fear of it coming back and spreading it. Uh, things like that, but in in some ways, uh, there, I feel like there's excitement and like a, a little little fire up under her uh, to really um, be more proactive and engaged with life. My mom actually just went through, um, <laughs> so that was a whirlwind. Uh, we got married in October 2019 at the end of the month and my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer at the beginning of October. So she is a survivor now. Um, and so we went through that journey of chemo and everything with her and you you hit the nail on the head. She came, I mean, that she is a strong woman. Okay. Like <laughs> my mama is very strong woman and she came out even stronger. I don't even know how, like the armor that she has now is wild. And she just, the other part of it is like, she doesn't make any concessions anymore. I'm not doing that. Nope. Don't care. I'm going to tell someone how it is. I'm going to communicate what I need to say. I'm going to see my kids. I'm going to do this. Like there's no wavering of her values and what she wants to do anymore because time's precious. So I think that's spot on. And I hope the same for your friend. Yeah. There's something about a, a, a health crisis that, uh, you know, where you become very clear on what's important to you immediately. And and what's not mm-hmm. important to you, and uh, and if you survive through that, then uh, you know you, you can continue to take that with you. I mean, some people go to other direction where it could completely mm-hmm. undo them, and then. But I think a lot of people actually, like you said, it depends on their support system and uh, the systems they had in place going into the crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it I think also determines how they handle it and uh, what we see on the other side of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, research shows, although again, this is one of the things that they don't put out into the world, even though it's there is that ongoing chronic stress on your body. So it's like, I try to give this progressive example, right? Where if you're stressed out, you might start to get like head tension. You might start to notice that you're holding your breath more. You might start to notice your thoughts are racing or the opposite. You're kind of foggy. They start out kind of mild, then it becomes, Ooh, my chest is tight. Am I having a heart attack? Then it goes to panic attacks. Then it goes to insomnia. Then it, right. Like there's this increase in our body saying something's not right. I need you to listen to me. I'm trying to tell you I'm overwhelmed. How can we manage this? Can you release this? Our emotions and stress is stored in our body. 
And eventually when we ignore our body for so long, it's like, look, I've tried to tell you, I've given you all the signs I possibly can. Here's some chronic pain. Hey, I've tried to tell you, you're not listening to me. Here's, you know, some other chronic disease to manage like a lupus or, you know, all the ones that people just, you know, they can't really find the causes of, um, and even up to cancer. So I I think that's, again, a disservice that we do. You asked at the beginning, what we could do systemically is we do a big disservice to our culture and our individuals and society by not educating them on the basics of stress management, because it has contributed to so many other medical issues. You know, that it reminds me of the book, Body Keeps the Score. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so much of it, 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 it talks about how, you know, the, tr- the, the issues are in the tissues. I, I think that's what yep. it says. And, you know, and it's true when I'm stressed, I find that foam rolling or having uh, Michelle press on my chest for a few moments, mm-hmm. uh, going for or taking a hot bath, but like bodily sensations. Uh, and yep. just kind of changing my state uh, changes my my perspective and helps me to zoom out a little bit more. Absolutely, yeah, and um, and yeah. So Bessel van der Kolk. Actually, I saw uh, the other day someone's live. Uh, someone commented and said that they can't find that book anywhere. I think because so many therapists and mental health professionals have been recommending uh, the the body keeps the score. It is an amazing book, and, and that's something I would sprinkle on society for everybody to read too. Um, another great author that I love. Uh, sometimes he can be a, a little monotone. And yet I love him. His name's Gabor Mate. Um, he's wrote books like In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts on addiction, which is beautiful. And then When the Body Says No, which literally kind of leads up to what I was just saying. Like your body tries to tell you. And then eventually, if you don't listen, it's going to say no for you. It's going to say, okay, sit down. You're not listening. We're not going to make it much longer. You better sit down. Uh, uh, you know, and so we were talking about Body Keeps the Score. And I was reading the reviews for it. and a lot of people seem to find that the uh, stories, the anecdotes uh, were re-traumatizing because he was so detailed in what other people's traumas and experiences had been. And they said they found it hard to read. Um, Do you think that there, for people who do want to read it and then get to the place where it's like, oh my God, this is bringing up stuff for me. What are they doing in that moment? Because a lot of times in these self-help books, you know, the antidote, the fixes, the cures, they're all at the end. Like you have to read through Mm -hmm. all this. And so is there something that um, uh, that people can do in those moments when they are reading self-help books and then there's a story that triggers them and they don't know where to go with that? Yeah. The body keeps the score is definitely something that I recommend to my clients that are already in therapy <laughs> or other professionals just to you know guide their work. And I always tell people these, these are things that should be supported with a therapist um, because like you said, it can be re-traumatizing, re-triggering. If you don't have basic coping skills from day one and you have trauma, you're not going to be able to work through those things. You're probably going to get some flashbacks. So you know, people hate to hear it, but go to therapy and get a great therapist that can support you through it. Uh, the other thing, obviously just like coping skills, but trauma is very, um, I mean, it takes over your whole body. It's your survival system. So I, 
I, you know, I can give basic coping skills. And then at the same time, I don't want anyone to be harmed because they're trying to breathe through, but for the most part, um, finding a safe place. So, um, notifying your body, Hey, we're safe. We're going to be reading about some things that might be overwhelming. And it sounds silly to have a conversation with yourself, but (laughs) we talk to ourselves all day in our head anyway. And your brain believes everything you tell it, your body believes everything you tell it. So if you say, Oh, this is awful. This is terrible. That's going to even make the triggering worse. But if you say, okay, we're going to read this and this might be a little vulnerable for me and I might be triggered and I am in control and I'm in charge and I can stop at any point. And the moment that you start, I'm very mind body and very somatic. So your body's going to tell you when your chest starts to get tight, when you notice you're holding your breath while, bre- while reading it, if you start to get hot, if you're clenching your jaw, listen to your body, don't force yourself to keep reading through it. Um, you know, take that break, but also the preparation, the finding a safe place to do it within both physically and mentally and having that good support system throughout it. I love that you mentioned that because I'm definitely one of those people who it was like, I got to, got to keep reading. It was like, I, I could feel my body <laughs> tightening up and my jaw clenched and, you know, I'm barely breathing. And it's almost like I'm now I'm reading it, hoping to find the fix. Like hopefully there's a part in the book that will release the tension. Uh, and sometimes it, it doesn't. Sometimes you, you just kind of left uh, with these emotions. So I, I love that message of, you know, even when you're reading a self-help book, it's not about, it sounds like what you're saying, it's not about finishing the book. It's about, you know, noticing your relationship uh, while the reading content. the book, right? Mm-hmm. The content and seeing how you respond to that and being aware of, Maybe when you should shut the book down versus thinking, well, I'm going to read a chapter a day, a chat, you know, a page might be too much. Maybe you, you read a paragraph and, and that's enough for the moment. So to stay, you know, in tune with your mind body connection while reading, do you have the same thing for like, like watching TV or watching a movie? Like I'm notorious for walking out of a movie if, uh, not just if I'm triggered, but sometimes they say something profound and I'm like, that's good. And I just like walk out the movie. Do, do you treat yeah. movies and, and uh, entertainment the same way? So what's coming to mind is I have an overarching mantra of listen to your body. That So, you know, what is the expectation you're trying to meet? Um, I see this. I'm going to pivot from your question for a minute, but I see this often when I recommend journaling to people. And then they don't do it and they don't do it and they don't do it. And I'm like, what is, what's holding you back? And I oftentimes find they have this image in their head that they have to write like a death pool diary entry that has like a beginning, a middle and an end and a full sentence structure. And it has to make sense. And I'm like, literally you could just doodle pictures. You could just word vomit some bullets on there. Word. They could just be words, right? It could be scribbles, you know? And sometimes I'll give examples of like, really basic, you know, things that I've just word vomited out of my brain or brain dumped out of my brain into a journal as an example journaling looks like. So I think releasing the expectation, um, who told you that, who said that you had to finish the chapter, whose expectation is that, um, oftentimes that comes out and should, I should probably finish this chapter because why? that a parent told you you should always read a chapter at a time or society said so, or that's an unrealistic expectation you put on yourself. Um, and so that's where you'll hear a lot of therapists say, stop shooting on yourself. <laughs> uh, Cause you, you really need to listen to your body. And when you don't listen to your body, that's where we get into these unwanted stress responses. 
I love so that. I say read until your body tells you it's not safe anymore. Read until, you know, or watch the movie until you've gotten what you need out of it. What's the worst that'll happen if you walk out of the movie? You paid 15 bucks. Okay. <laughs> you know? That's so fascinating that you say that because I recently have been waking up at like 3 a.m. in the morning, between 1 and 3. And I was like, what's going on here? It used to scare me. And I was like, is my buddy trying to tell me something? And then I read somewhere that, you know, when you wake up at that time, to write until your hand uh, starts to cramp. Or, you know, go outside and, and breathe in the cold air. And then once your body starts to get a little cold, that's when you come back in. So it's this idea of like, do a thing until your body is saying, uh, this doesn't work for me anymore. It's like I practice guitar every day and I just practice until I feel my right thumb uh, about to, to cramp. And then I'm like, all right, well, I'm done practicing guitar for the day. And, and I think we have such a, we're so fixated on time of like 30 minutes, mm -hmm. an hour or whatever that we, we, we lose sense of feel and body and connection. You're, you're so, you're so dead on about that. So I'm, I'm glad you opened up about that. Thank you. We try to be superhuman <laughs> and so in American society, you know, it's, it's, it's unrealistic. The, the focus and pressure we put on time, you know, and I always try to give the comparison with my clients, you know, imagine a Buddhist monk in a temple. Do you think they feel stress? Do you think they feel pressure? Do you think they feel these expectations? It's a societal problem. It's not a you problem. Um, it's like, I just gave this example to my husband yesterday and I often repeat this one is that we're so basic. We're very primal. Our bodies can only handle so much. It's like a car. So if you're putting kerosene instead of gasoline in the car, or you haven't filled the gas tank, or you haven't changed the, changed the oil in a year, or, you know, all the maintenance things you need to do for your vehicle, it's going to function the way the vehicle functions based on how you take care of it. And it's going to let you know right? When the serpentine belt needs change, you're going to start to hear that squealing. When it's out of gas, it's going to turn the light on. And those things happen in our body too. It's just that society never taught us. You got to pay attention. It says, you better get that in and you have a deadline and you need to pay attention to this. And what about social media? You got to hear that. No, four people have texted you. You better respond back right away. Right. And we get caught up in all this stuff that doesn't matter. And our bodies are just like trailing behind our head, <laughs> trying to keep up. Absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things that we also don't learn, because uh, we talk so much about self-soothing, uh, and I'm realizing, like, I never really learned how to uh, recover, how to relax, right? As, a, as, a, as, you know, in my 20s and 30s as a kid, relaxing meant, like, watching TV or going to the movies. And then as I got older, I realized uh, that's not that relaxing to me. Like, Sitting outside in a park is relaxing or now I'm like, oh, this is why people put long walks on the beach in their dating profile because it's it's like super soothing, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's so many things that we we have been taught in terms of what would help us like have a have a shots of tequila, uh, you know, happy hour. And we never really learn for ourselves. What does it look like to just relax and not do anything and uh, not feel obligated to, to engage. That's a really good point. It makes me think, um, you know, one of the most common questions I ask 
in, you know, in therapy work with people is what do you do for self-care? And I realized very early on, people have no idea. They weren't taught. They're like, oh, I take a bubble bath. I get my nails done. Um, I read. And there's like these like five top things that people think is self-care. And I'd argue if you get to the point that you're so depleted that you're like, I need to get outside and recharge. That's not self-care. That's like self-preservation. I'm going to die if I don't do that type thing. So to me, self-care is those in the moment things. When you're sitting at your desk and you've been sitting there so long, working, 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 and your neck is like, oh, we got to get up. And your back says, hey, we haven't done anything in a while. Can we move? And you're so dehydrated because you haven't had any water all day. And your eyes are hurting because you've been staring at a screen so long. It's those throughout the day little moments of like letting out the steam so you're not stuffing it away for days. And then, oh my gosh, I need relief, which is really just recover you know almost like a I'm trying to think of the word but it's like uh you're you're in crisis mode at that point just trying to survive I I love that you made a distinction between self-care and self-preservation uh Mm -hmm. can you say more about that the difference between that because you're right so many of us think we are self-caring but we're just self-preserving yeah you know self-care to me are those daily habitual things which, you know, are like noticing when you have that tension. Like for me, when I get so focused on something, I've I've gotten much better at it because I've had people call me out because I would be like holding my breath and then all of a sudden I'd be like, <gasps> and people next to me would say, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I just got to hold in my breath for a while. To me, that was like, what are you doing? Like breathe, you know? Um, or I like, I love having external things that remind me. So my Apple watch has been a godsend for me. I'm privileged enough to be able to have one, but even like a Fitbit or setting alerts on your calendar every 10 minutes to the hour, it's like, get up and move, get up and move my body. Um, so like noticing that tension in my body is, is one of the biggest self-care things for me. And that might not seem big but it is, it's huge because you're not letting all of that build up to the point where you need to escape it go. Um, you know, having those routines set in where every night you go for a walk or every Saturday you get together with friends or whatever that thing is, whatever makes you happy. It's different for everyone. But I would say in the moments, the listening to your body is the true self-care. I I love that. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, Amanda, is there anything that we haven't talked about in terms of, um, you know, mental health, destigmatizing it? Is there, is there a message that you would love for the people to have? Oh, is there some, I mean, I could talk forever about mental health. So yeah, there's a lot we haven't talked about, but as far as destigmatizing, health is health. So if your kidney is malfunctioning and you have kidney disease, or if you have heart disease or liver failure, right? They're all organs that we physically understand are malfunctioning and there's symptoms from them. When our brains have a dysfunction going on, or when our survival system, our stress response system is so engaged and active because of trauma, because of unresolved stress, that's still physical. So this, um, this concept of like, there's a separation or a delineation between mental health and physical health, it's all health. It's all wellness. 
So I like to just kind of throw that term. I mean, obviously I work in the mental health field, so I can't throw the term out entirely, but to me, it's, it's all health. It's all your body. It's all wellness. Those, those, um, quote unquote, mental health conditions and responses come from a physical place. Uh, uh, all health matters. There's a t-shirt yeah. ladies and gentlemen, oh, <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> social health, mental health, emotional health, all these things, financial health, all these things matter. You know, that, that wellness wheel, uh, it exists for a reason. It, it really is a blueprint for recognizing uh, areas where uh, you might have some unhealthy behaviors or seeing how one, uh, you know, behavior in one area is affecting maybe the other five or mm-hmm. six other areas of, uh, you know, of wellness in your life. Uh, it's all connected. Um, Absolutely. Uh, um, Amanda, this is amazing. Where can people find you? Where can they, uh, you know, whether it's social media, your organization, plug all your things. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, You can go to our website, carvemypath.org. You can find most of our um, services there. There's also our podcast and blog links there. Um, Our podcast is called Grow Your Path to Wellness. So we have a lot of wellness professionals on our podcast that's available on YouTube to watch the video or any podcast platform. Um, I do, like I said, I do a lot on TikTok. So that um, handle is called Carve Your Own Path Too. yeah, and then Instagram, Carve My Path, all the places. And then last question, and I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Amanda? I would say today, oh, I'm going to steal my friend's quote. <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad day. Some days are good. Some days are better. But there's no such thing as a bad day. Today, your feelings might be overwhelming. Today, your expectations might have been crushed. Today, you might have missed an opportunity. Today, you might not want to get out of bed. Tonight, Today, your suicidal ideations are super strong. And you're still here. And you have another opportunity to make it through a day, to make something of yourself. You know, you're still here to make changes and be a part of this beautiful world. So everything is temporary. There are no bad days. Some days are good. Some days are better. I love that. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the Trevor Project. All those numbers are listed in each and every one of the show notes. There are groups, there are uh, chats, there are, uh, for my international listeners, uh, there are numbers for every country, not uh, maybe, maybe not every country, but most countries. So even if you're in Antarctica, Sri Lanka, Budapest, wherever you are, Croatia, uh, there is help available for you. There's free help. And if uh, you need help paying for help, there are resources also located in the show notes uh, where uh, they can provide that for you. So there's no excuses, but you do have to take the first step and make that phone call. If you want one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Amanda. You're welcome. Thank you.